Well, good morning again. My name is Marshall. Welcome to all of those of you who are joining us online or later in the week. I do want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking at the passage that Wayne just read for us. I have one addition to the Rock the Block uh, announcement. I am very aware uh, what is happening at 3.25 p.m. next Sunday. Some of you get because you know. Uh, the post-Aaron Rodgers era begins for the Bears as the Bears kick off versus the Green Bay Packers. And so we will most certainly have a TV here at Rock the Block so we can uh, enter into a new and greater glory. Um, <laughs> thank you, Jets. Um, uh, I will say, do please keep Bible open. If you don't own a Bible, uh, you feel free to keep the Bible that's in your pew. Bible larceny is encouraged here. So... Let me pray before we look at these verses. Our great God, as uh, we enter into this story of your son and his temptation, something that feels, uh, well, existentially real, uh, we, we can feel the temptations of our own lives. I pray that you would meet us, that you would encourage us. I pray that a faintly burning wick you will not extinguish and a bruised reed you will not break. Because many in the sound of my voice are bowed down by temptation to the point of breaking. In your son's victory over temptation, would you meet us? For your son's name's sake, we pray. Amen. I'm a movie guy. I actually got a couple movie quotes today. And, uh, you know, movies, especially hero movies and redemption story movies, often have the hero do something at the outset of the movie, something very early in the movie that establishes their identity. They overcome some small adversity that is the promise that they will um, overcome some larger challenge ahead. Something at the outset that foreshadows. It is a preview. It in sometimes is the story in miniature. One of my favorite films is Gladiator. Uh, the General Maximus is fiercely loyal to Rome. He's brave in battle. He's a leader of men, and he's loyal. He is loyal to Rome and especially to his beloved emperor. He's committed to the idea that is Rome. His motto, of course, is strength and honor, right? And that, that's the opening scenes of the film Gladiator, and that sets us up for the great challenge that he will face at the end of his life when he will ultimately give his life for Rome. Now, we're in this new sermon series, Jesus Unexpected. And the first three sermons are the backstory to Jesus' public ministry. Three weeks ago, we, or actually it's two weeks ago, two weeks ago we looked at Jesus' conception, that he's the Son of God. Last week, uh, Nick led us through Jesus' and relationship to John the Baptist. We'll actually come back to Luke 2 and the birth of Jesus during Advent. Uh, but next week, Jesus starts his public ministry. He goes forth, he preaches, he does miracles, all that stuff. That's next week. This is still the backstory. This week, Jesus' baptism and his temptation. These two events, his baptism and his temptation, both very important and related to one another. Because Jesus is here declared to be the Son of God in his baptism, and immediately after that declaration, he is tested in the wilderness by the devil. And this story, this little, little mini story here, is a foreshadowing. It's looking forward. It's a preview of coming attractions. In many ways, this is a miniature of the story of Jesus. It's a miniature of the gospel for who Jesus is and what he will do. But even more than a preview, this story is the beginning of the end of evil. 
This story is the beginning of the end of evil. This is the way N.T. Wright says it. Jesus' victory over the powers of evil began at his temptation. So this whole story, and especially the way that Jesus navigates his temptation, they are, this is such an unexpected story. I want us to see three things today, quite simply. The baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and then the, what the temptation means for us. The outcomes of the temptation, what it means for us. But first, the baptism of Jesus. I'm not going to dwell long here. I'm not going to talk about the relationship between Jesus' baptism and ours, how they're similar, how they're different. I'm not going to get into that. But I do want to talk about this declaration that God the Father makes of his son. When he says, verse 21 and 22, Now all the people were baptized. And when this, Chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is the great affirmation. God the Father speaking to God the Son, saying, I am well pleased with you. You are my beloved, my beloved son. Now, on the one hand, it's interesting that the Son of God even needed to hear these words because of what was ahead of him. God the Father knew what was ahead of his son in this whole becoming a human thing, which would lead in his death. He needed these words of his own belovedness. The Father also knew that we needed these words. We needed to know that Jesus is the beloved of his Father. But make no mistake, Jesus needed these words as well. He needed to hear his Father say, you are my beloved. Because it's at this point... Jesus' identity as the beloved Son of God, it's at this point that the temptation starts and ends. And it's throughout Jesus' life. You see, if you look at the devil's temptations, let's look just a little bit ahead to chapter 4. In two of the three temptations of the devil to Jesus, what does he say? Verse 3, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Verse 9, if you are the Son of God. Jump off this temple and let God's angels save you. The devil is implying, surely, if this is happening to me, you, you cannot be the beloved Son of God. If you're hungry, no way that you're the Son of God. Surely you cannot be the beloved Son of God if you lack power or suffer in any way. And certainly you cannot be the beloved of God if he asks you to die for the sins of the world. You see, this temptation to forsake his belovedness, this temptation to forsake his belovedness comes back at nearly every point of Jesus' ministry. This is the temptation to believe he is not the beloved son of God. You see, above all, Satan is trying to break up the relationship between the Father and the Son, if he can just convince Jesus he is not beloved, then Jesus will not go through with this mission trying to prevent Jesus from feeling the beloved. And so into this, God speaks audibly. He says, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now before I move on, I thought about moving this to the conclusion because I'm going to say something of this again. But you need to hear this. If you are in Christ, you need to know that this is what God says over you. Beloved, you are the beloved of God. If you are in Christ, you have this status. 
beloved. And so fighting temptation, when we're going to talk about temptation a little bit earlier, fighting temptation is ultimately not about having the right accountability structures. It's not about discipline ultimately. Those things matter. But ultimately, fighting temptation in any of the Christian life is about knowing that you are loved by God. And to know you're loved, you need both an objective, something outside yourself, something tangible that you can point to, and you also need the subjective, the internal, the warm experience. My wedding band, if I can get it off, uh, I try to keep it on, um, but my wedding band is a reminder that someone looked me in the eye and said, I will be with you. You are loved. This is objective proof of my wife's love for me. This, incidentally, is one reason that baptism, which we celebrated a lot recently, is so important. Even if you were an infant, as I was, when water is poured over your head and the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is laid upon you, what that is saying is you are loved of God. And that is an objective reality. You can walk away from your baptism, but you can never remove it. You can never remove it. I can't remember if it's Luther or Augustine, the great church fathers. Luther or Augustine, one of them said, when times are tough, remember your baptism. Even for, I, was an, I don't remember my baptism, but I know it happened. I was marked with the beloved word of God. But it's not just the objective reminder. We also need the subject. We need that experience of belovedness. Right In marriage, it's intimacy in all of its form. This wedding band is not worth much if I don't have a relationship with my wife. And in Christian living, welling up that belovedness is worship in all of its form. It's the Lord's Supper, taking that meal. It's Sunday worship. And it is daily worship. All of us need daily time, even it's brief, daily alone time with God where you remind yourself of your belovedness with whatever it is you're facing, whether it's your fears, your failures, your temptations, to take those things and be reminded that God of the universe says, I love you, you are my beloved. Time alone every day to do this. Letting God's belovedness wrap you. Yesterday, I was tired and grumpy. Uh, I failed in many ways yesterday, and I think of the ways I failed as a father. And, you know, there's nothing more shameful than shaming an eight-year-old. I mean, that's just like, that's just bad fathering, just, you know, fathering 101. But, you know, when I thought about that this morning, I thought about it last night, thought about it this morning, I was like, why do I do this? And I like, you know, the temptation is like, I just got to do better today. I got to do better today as a father, as a husband, as a human being. But you know what I knew I needed to do, especially because I was about to preach this sermon, before I started working this morning, before I started working on this, I had to start with my belovedness. If I'm going to show love to my son, I need to be reminded that my heavenly father loves me. And even in my failures yesterday, shaming an eight-year-old, come on, I needed to know of my love so that I can move towards him in his love. Whatever it is you're facing this morning, failure, fear, temptations, whatever in the week ahead, whatever's in the week past, you need to know that you are the beloved, the beloved of God. If you are in Christ, God's posture towards you is never, never different than beloved. Never. And it's needful for us to remember that because at first glance... God's love for his son is expressed in what seems a strange way. Namely, point to 
temptation. Okay? I love you so much, son. Now I'm going to let you be tempted in the wilderness. Look with me at verse 4, chapter 1. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. He's just had the audible voice of God. He's been baptized. He has, you know, this acceptance, beloved of God. Returned from the Jordan, which is his lush area, and he was led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. God so loved his son that he let him be tempted. Now that seems strange. Or does it? I have a friend who likes to say that parenting, and maybe especially fathering, involves saying, I love you, you're beloved. Now get back out there. You can do this. I love you. Now get back out there and you can do this. See, a good parent does not protect their child from the world. A good parent prepares their child for the world. And as a parent, in small but increasing doses, we let our children fail. We ask them to take responsibility. We let them hurt. And so it is with God the Father because this episode is a preview of coming attractions. Jesus will face far worse than the devil in the desert. He will face the sins of the world and the crucifixion. This is the story in miniature. Now, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, Jesus is tempted in three different ways. But before we get to that, there's two questions I think I need to address because I'm sure that they're popping into some of your minds. The first question is more for those of you who are skeptics, not sure what you think about Jesus and Christianity. The second question is probably more for followers of Jesus. First question, is the devil real? Is the devil real? I say unequivocally, yes. Now, does that mean there was a creature with horns and cloven feet in the wilderness with Jesus? Not necessarily. Maybe. This may have been a creature. There may have been a physical presence. There seems to have been in the garden in Genesis 3. It may have been an unseen voice. Uh, Think of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and and the snake in the wall, right? Unseen voice. It may have been diabolical thoughts pressed upon Jesus by the devil. I cannot prove the devil to you, but I absolutely believe the devil is real, and so are demons. A little bit of an aside here, but I like the way that this is framed. I think you'll help me make my point. Dale Bruner, who's one of my favorite New Testament commentators, says this about the German higher critics of the 19th century. The German higher critics of the 19th century are basically all the people who've created problems for Christians for the last 150 years. They're the people who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth. They just basically questioned everything about the Bible, and they were really, really smart. Okay, But they, the German critics of the 19th century, they led the charge in dismissing the devil and demons. That's fanciful. We're enlightened people. We don't need devils or demons. And Bruner says, perhaps it's no surprise that they experienced the hyper-demonic reign of Nazis several decades later. As Kevin Spacey says in one of my favorite movies of all time, The Usual Suspects, his character, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. So the devil is real, I do believe that. Second, is Jesus, this is more for followers of Jesus, is Jesus really a human being? Or is he really more like Superman? You know, he kind of like, these temptations, that he just kind of like fly, you know, he's high. This isn't really impacting him, okay? This is just kind of like, he's just kind of sailing through life. He's not really human. The Christian position is that Jesus, and this is a mystery, is both fully God and fully human. And there's two main temptations that the church has faced when it comes to the person of Jesus. The first temptation is to deny that Jesus was fully God. 
You may have heard of the heresy called Arianism. Arianism is the heresy that said Jesus was like God. He was like God, but he wasn't really God. But the second temptation is to deny that Jesus is fully human. One of the manifestations of that is a heresy called docetism, which simply says that Jesus was God, but he only seemed to be human. Now, a couple weeks ago, when we talked about the conception of Jesus, that's a statement that Jesus is God. This story is saying Jesus is fully human. He identifies with us by submitting himself to baptism. And now, like us, he faces the ravages, the consequences of sin, the physical temptation of hunger, the temptations of the evil one. As Hebrews 4 verse 15 will say, Jesus has been tempted in every respect as we are. He is fully human and he fully experiences all the temptations. It's a mystery, fully God and fully human, but this is what this text is contending. Now, background here, this is an important background, and kind of for Bible nerds, this is kind of cool. There's a little color here to what is fully happening and why it matters that Jesus is fully human. Because there's a couple cool stories in the Old Testament that Jesus, in some ways, is reliving. Jesus, in some ways, is kind of re-entering and reliving two different stories. The first is this, you might have already picked up on this, is the Garden of Eden where our first parents, Adam and Eve, were tested by the devil. And basically, like Jesus, what uh, the Satan asked our first parents was, is God really good? Are you sure that God loves you? The way he frames the question is, did God really say you cannot eat from the tree? He's questioning God's goodness. And Jesus is reliving that story. But even more interesting are the echoes of the Exodus, when the people of Israel are delivered from the Egypt, Red Sea and all that. They pass through the waters of baptism as Jesus has just passed through the waters of baptism. And then he is led into the wilderness as they were led into the wilderness. You see, it very much appears that Jesus is the second Adam and the true and faithful Israelite who passes his own wilderness test. And these context clues, they point to what is going on. Jesus is having and did have a full human experience. The Lord of creation hungers and thirsts in the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. He faces the consequence of sin, which is to say Jesus walks in our shoes. He did. He felt what we felt, the fallenness of the world, the injustice of the world, the pain of the world. And actually, you may not believe me, but Jesus actually felt it more than you, more than me. Because this, the per, it's not the person who gives in to temptation who feels the fullness of temptation. It's the person who continues to resist that feels the full weight of temptation. It's like if I'm trying to fall into temptation and there's a rope holding me back. This illustration is not going to work. Um, I'm going to make it work. If, I am try, if there's a rope cutting into me and it's hurting further and further, the nice thing to do is to cut it and you, you feel the release. But if you keep on leaning and feeling that cut, it's more and more intense. Jesus never sinned and he was tempted his entire life. He feels temptation even more than us. But as the second Adam and the faithful Israelite, he passed the test. So let's look a little bit at the details, the tests that he faces and how he runs the gamut of human experience. The first test, verse 3 and following, is to turn stones into bread. This is to test the needs of our humanity, the needs of our flesh. 
Verse 5, the second test is the test of power. Worship me, Satan says, and I'll give you authority to dominate others. The third test is glory or spectacle. Verse 9 and following, throw yourself from the temple and the angels will recognize you and people will praise you. Now, friends, these are our temptations, okay? Now, most of us in the 21st century in America, we do not struggle with hunger. But we are certainly tempted with the desires of our humanity, of our flesh, predominantly lust and greed. All of us are tempted by power to be in charge, to dominate, to have others submit to us. It may be in politics, but it is certainly in our family life, our relationships. We want to rule, and all of us long to be noticed, to have somebody notice how special we are. Jumping from a temple, we all want that glory, that spectacle. And anything we face is a variation of these temptations. The temptation of greed is longing for that fleshly provision, that bread. If, you have a, if you're angry at your spouse because they won't do what you want, that is the temptation of power. And if you long for more likes on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, that is the temptation of glory. Jesus faced it all. He faced everything that we faced. But one of the things that's interesting is none of these things are inherently bad. Food is not bad. God created it. Power is not bad. God gave it to us. And even all of us are created unique and specially knows the number of hairs on our head. It is good to feel special. These are not inherently bad things. But you see, at root, Satan is challenging Jesus to be a different kind of Messiah. He's saying, how will you handle your flesh? How will you handle power? How will you handle Glory. The temptation for Jesus is be the people's Messiah. Give them bread and circuses. Be a kingly Messiah. Rule them in goodness and power. Be a religious Messiah. Jump off a holy building into a holy city and claim the promises of the holy angels in the holy scripture to rescue you. See, at the outset of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is demonstrating what kind of Messiah he will be. God in Christ does not come to dominate us. He comes to love us, to give himself. He comes to suffer, to die, to give himself. And he will be lifted up, but not on a temple, but on a cross. A new high priest for sinners, the sacrificial lamb of God, who so loved the world, not that he dominated, but that he gave himself. So Jesus' experience of temptation, though, has massive implications for us. And I want us to see four implications of Jesus' temptation for us. The first is this. You will be tempted. You will be tempted. If the Son of God was tempted, so will you be. I mean, again, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led into the wilderness to be tempted. We tend to think that when life gets hard, we must have done something wrong. We must not be filled with the Spirit of God. That is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches baptism, then the battle. Joy, then the conflict. Water, then the wilderness. The point is this. The spirit who baptizes us also leads us to spiritual battle. As one author says, whenever heaven breaks in and speaks to a life, the voice of hell is not far behind. Because you will be tempted. 
because you will, you are being tempted. It's important for you to identify what is it that tempts me. All of us are tempted in different ways. What is it for you? Are you more tempted by the sins of the flesh? Are you more tempted by power? Are you more tempted by the need, the longing for glory? What is it that tempts you? We're all different. But there's also this. As you get older, temptations change. They change as we get older. You know, for younger folks, the temptation tends to be for glory and lust. As you get a little more mature, which is the pastoral way of saying old, uh, as you get more mature, we tend to have more and more greed for money and for power. Temptations change. Identify what it is that tempts you. Be your own physician. Because you will be tempted as Jesus was. Second thing about temptation, we have resources. We have resources to fight temptation. I mean, let's just look at Jesus' example. I'm just going to use this passage. Jesus has at least four resources. Prayer, fasting, scripture, and belovedness. First, let's put prayer and fasting together. For 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness communing with the Father in prayer and in fasting. In prayer and fasting. He spends time with God in prayer and fasting. I'm not going to say a ton about this, except they're both important. We, I've, I can't think I've ever preached a sermon on uh, fasting, probably because I feel so convicted. Um, I did this week. I was like, I'm preaching on fasting at some level. I'll at least skip breakfast this week. So, you know, I intermittent fasted this week. I'm back to breakfast, though. Um, but I, I make light of it. But fasting is actually super important. And it's for the reason that Jesus says. Because when you are fasting and you feel that lack you have that experience that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. John Piper has a great book on fasting. I will preach about it someday. But second, so it's prayer and fasting, but second and third, or second, third, whatever, is scripture. Three times, three times, Satan tempts Jesus, and three times he does not argue. He just quotes the scripture. And it's interesting, all of the quotes of the scripture are from the wilderness generation, where the people of God failed in the wilderness. Jesus picks up verses from that time and quotes them back to Satan. And all I can say this is to know the Bible is to help yourself fight temptation. But listen to this, and I said this before. Above all, the way that Jesus fights temptation is experiencing his belovedness. We have a Savior who has been tested in every way as we have, and he passes the test ultimately by knowing that he is love. So as you face the temptations of the body, the temptations of power and of glory, your best and last defense is to know that the God loves you, accepts you, calls you his own. So we have resources second. But the third thing is, when you fail, and you will fail, we all fail, you can know because of this story that Jesus came to pass the test that we could never pass. He lived a life we could never live, and he died a death for us. You see, Christianity is not about performance. It's not even about passing temptation. Christianity is about substitution. It is about substitution. We fail, he succeeds. We lose, he gets the victory. We get what he earned, life. He gets what we deserved, namely death. 
And let me say a special word for some of you who aren't just looking forward to temptation. You're in the midst of it. And maybe you have just recently done something you never thought you would do. You've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen, you have done something that you never thought you would. This story is for you. This story is for you because in our place, in your place, condemned he stood. Christianity is not about your performance. You are beloved because of what he has done. He is not, he is, it's not our performance. He is our substitute. So if you, have failed, if you have fallen in some grave way, this story is for you. But the final thing I want us to see, I want you to notice how, you know, the beginning and the end of a story is always important. I want you to notice how Jesus enters the story and then how Jesus exits this story. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Full of the Spirit, Jesus returned from the Jordan, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Then you have the whole ordeal. Then you have all the temptations, all the trials. And then at the end, I love this. This is the first thing that jumped out to me in studying this this week. Verse 14. After all of that, he enters into the temptation full of the Spirit. How does he leave it? He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then he begins his public ministry. You see, his temptation did not lead him to weakness, but to spiritual power and to victory. Friends, this story is the beginning of the end of evil. This is the beginning of the end of evil. And one day at the end of time when God will make all things right and conquer evil fully and finally, it begins here in the wilderness. So as you enter your week, take the belovedness that is yours in Christ. Take the belovedness that is yours in Christ and take it with you. But also take this. Take Jesus' victory over sin with you. He is your substitute. He is your Lord. He has given this to you. Take his victory. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this story. You did not need to include this in your word except the fact that you wanted us to see it, to know it, that your son was tempted in every way as we are and yet is without sin. And because of what he has given us, namely himself, we are able to follow after him. Imperfectly, yes, but to know that our Savior reigns, lives, and is victorious. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.